0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Most, most people have heard of him, are familiar with him. Many have heard of his miracles, of how he heals the sick, how he cares for the outcasts of society. And that's all very attractive. It's good. But there's more to Jesus than just that, than just the humble and meek, the the tender and near. He is for sure that that is true. But there is also another another aspect of Jesus that is also true, the peace that shows up in our passage in Colossians chapter 1 today. Not only the lowly and meek Jesus, but a high and exalted one one who is of preeminent rank, that is highest, first, top. Supreme in all majesty and authority. That Jesus is real too. And sometimes that one unsettles people. Because we all had a little bit of a taste, somewhere or another, of supreme authority and seen it abused. And when we hear Christians talk about Our Jesus is the one who is in supreme authority, which includes not just the right to to rule now, but also the right to judge. That unsettles some people. That that kind of makes us pause for a second. We want the former. We want the, the helpful Jesus, the Jesus who is near and compassionate and gracious and kind, but we would perhaps prefer to have that without the latter one, the one who is supreme and in all authority and ranks first and is in charge and commands. But he's both, in fact. And he has to be both, in fact. Rather than being a threat to us, that actually is the only hope that we have. It's the only way, the only reason that he can be the helpful one, the one that we want, the one who, who is compassionate, who, who heals, who helps, who redeems, who fixes. The only reason that he can even be that one is because he is also the other one. One who reigns and commands and holds the whole world in his hands and who does whatever he pleases. So it's a very good thing that he's both the one who is near and helpful and tender and the one who is high and exalted. And Paul wants to remind the church in Colossae in this passage, and therefore by extension, God wants to remind the church there and the church here. He wants to remind us of this Jesus and to say to us, Behold Christ. To increase our joy in Him, to stoke the fire, to increase our internal burning for him and our rest in Him and our confidence in Him. Because this Jesus, this, this one is the one that you are in. If you remember past weeks and really months now we've been talking about in various ways, a union with Christ of being joined with him. Remember the balloon idea of being included in the balloon. Union with Christ. Well, it's it's with this Christ. This one's the one you're united with. As we think about him and and hear him, it's like, whoa, that's that's a Jesus that is wonderful to be an ally of, wonderful to be a friend of, wonderful to be united with, wonderful to be included in. This Jesus. That's what we look at today in. In Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty, and depending on how your Bible looks, depending on what, what what your text, how your text has been set, it may be indented or marked off in some way, because in large part, this these verses existed before the the letter of Colossians as a saying, or sometimes it's called a hymn a creed in the early church. And Paul has taken that under the inspiration of God, modified it in a few ways, and put it right in the, in the middle of his letter here so as to hold up in front of us Jesus and remind us of who he is and increase in us joy and, and to cause the fire to burn in us a little more. So that's what we're looking at today. Jesus. Real simple. Look at 15 to 20. It has two sections. I'll draw two observations, one from each section. But first, let me read it. Colossians chapter one. I'm going to begin in verse thirteen to get a little bit of a run into it, to get some of the setting. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, supreme over all creation. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, supreme over all creation. That's what the first section about, is Jesus and creation, big picture in general. The, the second section, as we'll see, moves on to talk about Jesus and his relation to redemption and the church. But first we begin kind of bigger picture. It's Jesus, who is the beloved Son of God, we saw in verse 13, who is he? He is the image of the invisible God. It's not that that God the Son came into existence, but God the Son came into a body, came into a physical body to present to our physical senses what was otherwise unseen, and, and therefore always a challenge to us. We... We can read about, we can hear about, and we can think about the concept of of God, but it's always difficult for us being being people to to get that right. If if it was never actually detectable to our senses, we would forever have have a difficulty, and so God kind of stoops to our weakness and says, here, let me present to you an image for you to look at and for you to hear and for you to touch to understand and to appreciate. Let me present to you Jesus. God the Son, who became a man. But what we look at when we look at Jesus, the man, is we're looking at God. He himself said that in the Gospel of John to one of his followers. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And not 90% of the Father. Not mostly God. God if that was the case then we would be still in the same position we'd still be stuck wondering which part of you is not like god which part of you is is just not divine now he's he's the exact representation of his being as hebrews 1 says this is the exact and perfect image of god god in flesh the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation a very important phrase that it's meant to actually encourage and build up but sometimes it becomes a stumbling block for us because in large part because there's a false teaching that's been around forever and still exists today a false teaching about who Jesus is based on a misunderstanding of this very phrase some have read that word firstborn and thought that it must mean literally, the first one born. Sounds like it. They've thought that's what it must mean. And have, therefore I've interpreted it to mean that Jesus is the first one created. and have stopped right there and gone on with that idea and thought, well, if he's the first one created, well, then he can't be the eternal God because <laughs> eternal, never having beginning, And created, that's a contradiction. So he he can't be. He must be very, very, very important, but he's not the eternal God. That's the thinking of some, and it's a teaching that's still out there today, and it unsettles some, but it's totally wrong. Never mind that that idea disagrees with all the rest of the scripture. What's most important for us here is, in our context, is that we just keep reading. That's, that's always an important and helpful tip when you're studying the Bible. Keep reading. Don't take things out of context. Especially when you're dealing with a word like this one whose meaning is very dependent on the context. Because firstborn can mean the first one born. It's used that way in a bunch of places in literature. But it also can mean something else. Because firstborns historically, maybe sometimes even today, Firstborns, historically, have all kinds of unique privileges and unique value, unique authority. They they become more loved. They become more important. they They have unique privileges. They become the rulers of households. Historically, the first people, especially the first son born, gets all that kind of privilege and unique status. And so then metaphorically, that word was very often used to also describe people who have that kind of status. With no reference to any kind of order or sequence. Very easy to see that. You can look in the Bible. If you look at Exodus 4:22, you see Israel, the whole nation of Israel called the firstborn of God, which obviously is not about birth order. It's about unique status and unique privilege. So it can mean the first one born. It can also mean one that has unique power, unique authority, unique status, is uniquely beloved. Which does it mean here? Keep reading. Firstborn of all creation, for, this is verse 16, for, because. Why is Jesus Christ the Son, the firstborn of all creation? Is it because he was created first? No. Because by or in him all things were created. Which things? All things. The things in heaven and the things on earth, the things you can see and the things you can't. And specifically all the spiritual powers, that's what all those, those four words there about dominions and And rulers, all those words there mean thrones. That's talking about spiritual powers, angels and fallen angels. He's the firstborn of the creation because he is the creator of the creation. All of it, repeated several times so that we don't miss the point. If it was made, it was made by Jesus made through him. He's the agent that carries out the creation idea of God, made through him, in him, made for him. It exists, all of it exists for him, like a canvas exists for a painter. This is for Jesus to display the majesty and the wisdom and the power and the beauty and the creativity of Jesus. Everything that's made, made in him and made for him. And that's on all, verse 17. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. To say that he is before is not only to say that he existed before. And he was before all the creation. That's true, too. The eternally existing God existed beforehand. But it also is a statement, he is before. It's a statement about rank. He is before everything. He is first. He is supreme. He's in charge, the commander. Present tense statement. And present tense, he sustains the creation. He is the one who holds it all together at this very moment. The sun shines and we draw breath. Our molecules hold together because Jesus says, every single moment, let it be. And it is. You take all of that together, and what you have is a huge, all-encompassing compound statement that has four parts to it. He's the firstborn of creation because, in the past, all creation was made through him, and all creation was made for him. And in the present, he outranks all the creation as its ruler and sustains it all as its keeper, moment by moment by moment. Whoever can claim all of that would be the ruler. And because that's Jesus, therefore, he's the firstborn, that is, the special, privileged, sovereign one of all the creation. Founder and president, ruler, sustainer, and judge, Jesus. That's big. And probably most of us here, probably most of us already knew that. You're familiar with this passage. But this has to be, why are we here? This, this has to be more than just, well, so that I can learn some facts about Jesus. No, 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 no. That, that has to be a, a log placed on the fire and then p- prayed to be fanned into flames So that something burns inside of you, that, yes, and amen, that is Jesus Christ. That's the Lord. And if we want to drop it down down one level in a little bit more detail, it's not a lot of detail, but it's the only detail that's in these first few verses. Specifically, he mentions with four words, spiritual powers, the dominions and thrones part. Uh, You might think it it would be perhaps for for us, we might say, he's Lord over those people and Lord over this problem. But Paul says several times, Lord over that spiritual power and that spiritual power and that spiritual power and that spiritual power, the powers. Why? Why does he mention that so many times? Probably in part because, we talked about this some time back, we only get the problem in Colossae indirectly. Probably in part they were in some way being lured into some ways to appease powers. And Paul's saying, no need. Jesus made them, owns them, and they're for him. He's got it. And that directly speaks to some some people in the world today who fear the powers But the reason that they would be tempted to appease them, the reason they'd be so concerned is the word fear. And What does that mean for us? Well, if you've never spent any time in the last week worrying about a demon, they're they're real. You've probably spent some time worrying about something and, and contemplating, how do I appease that? How do I solve that? What do I do to remove this danger? And if Paul were writing to us, to you, he would probably say, you know, whatever it is you're thinking about there, that job, that person, that health condition, that financial challenge, that political issue, that, that national, ginormous, huge dilemma that nobody can figure out, it sits right there in the palm of this Jesus who made everything from which that problem is composed, who sustains every element of that problem moment by moment for himself. He has it. We have nothing to fear. If this Jesus, if this Jesus is for you, you have nothing to fear. Powers People, let alone things like unemployment and little things like health concerns and now I, I know I know those I, I'm preaching this, I thought about it, I ran it through the, all the stuff that I fear, and it doesn't to say that doesn't make it all go away but the, the the need, the point is would you put a log on the fire, please, and would you would you stoke it would you would you Fan it into flames, and Spirit of God, would you cause us to burn in me, so that I would see everything that I fear in light of this Jesus, who reigns over the puny stuff, the light and momentary consequences of this life. Yeah, there, they're, yeah, death is real, light and momentary. This one reigns, and Christian, that's the one that you are in. That's the one to whom you have been united who will never leave you nor forsake you. That is your friend. That's good news. We are not at the mercy or the whim of anything, not spiritual powers, not earthly powers, nothing. There is nothing to fear and nothing to wonder about and nothing to cringe in front of and nothing at all that can take us away from this one who reigns, and who is for us. Which leads to the second observation. Jesus Christ is the one in whom the broken creation is made right again. Jesus Christ is the one in whom the broken creation is made right again. Beginning at verse 18, we have a, a shift from the first section that's all kind of big picture about creation to then not just all things in creation, but specifically the church as people. So I might call it the, the re-creation or the new creation. You might use that, the re part because it fits with words like renew and reconcile, which is in this passage, and redeem, which was right before. He made things and he's making things again a recreation so notice the transition coming out of 17 we have him that first in rank above all things who sustains all things and then 18 he's first in rank in the church, he's the head of the body, the church the one who sustains it and he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, there's another use of that word I wonder what it means here keep reading context again. And here the context is going to push us in a slightly different direction. If we keep reading we see where he was, firstborn of all creation. Here the words are different. Firstborn from the dead. The beginning. The firstborn from the dead. So what is he beginning when he is the firstborn from the dead? Well he starting something he's starting the resurrection which is very similar to a point we saw several weeks ago in First Corinthians 15 where Paul there calls Jesus not the firstborn but the firstfruits he's switching analogies there it was firstfruits of the harvest out of the grave the first the beginning there's more to follow but he's first here he's the firstborn there's, there's more to follow but he's first he's the beginning Of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. Purpose, so that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. Not just in life, but also in the next life. In everything. Highest, supreme, preeminent. In the great resurrection life. And he will be that because, verse 19, he's fully God. And verse 20, He's the one who makes it all happen. He's the one who makes the resurrection and the new life happen. This is a couple of sentences about gigantic things. Here's the plan of God in wonderful, mysterious splendor. to place all the fullness of God. Verse 19 says, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is the plan. God was pleased to do this. This is the plan of God. That all of his fullness, everything that God is, all of his majesty and all of his might and all of his grace and all of his wisdom and all of his love, which all together forms, forms a, a gigantic multifaceted package. You can't ever really take out any one of those facets and consider, consider the facet in isolation because you can't consider, for instance, power apart from power for love and power for holiness and power for, for justice You can't consider justice apart from love. They're all together, all of his attributes, all that God is, his fullness in Christ by design. From before the beginning of time, by design. that here would be an exact representation of his being, a perfect image of God come onto the earth to do something. Not just to say, look at me, but also to say slightly differently, watch me. I'm going to do something. And as I do, as this full image of God acts, as he does something in particular, which we're going to get to in verse 20, as he does something in particular, we see the fullness of God. We see all of the justice and all the power and all the wisdom and all the love and all the grace in particular, all the grace. Put this log on the fire, the grace of God in Jesus. We see the grace because what God does is he redeems, he reconciles, he makes what's broken right again. This is the nature of God. Jesus is indeed the exact correct image. All of God's fullness dwells in him. And through Jesus, he's reconciling the broken world to God himself. Broken world, God, reconciled. The the rift restored. Restored. All the creation, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Again, whatever it is, reconciled, which might make us pause. Wait, hold, hold, hold on a second. Some have misunderstood this, too. Ah, therefore, everybody gets saved, right? If, if it says, all things... Whether on earth or heaven, all things reconciled to himself. Wouldn't it be the character of God to save everyone, that there would be no hell, that that every every fallen, every broken thing, he's going to fix it all and bring it all back to himself? There's no judgment. There's no hell. Keep reading. The very next paragraph makes clear that's not actually the case. That's not what Paul means. We'll look at this more next week, but the very next paragraph makes clear that actually the only way that individual people get reconciled to God is if and as we trust Jesus' death on the cross, this blood of the cross, if we trust it for ourselves personally, if and as we do that, that's how a person is individually, personally reconciled to God, made holy and blameless in his sight. More on that next week when he begins to talk about what this means for individual people. But Paul's not talking about individual people yet, he's talking about Jesus right now. This is all about Jesus and his glorious, preeminent, top position and the reason for it. He's not only God in flesh, but he's God who reconciles a rebellious world, making a creation Of peace by the blood of his cross. What's that that about? Let's think down a different path for a second. What if there was no cross? What, what What if there's no cross, no Jesus crucified, no atonement for sin then? We would still have verses 15 to 17. We'd still have the Jesus creator and ruler who holds all things together for his own purposes for him. And we'd still have Jesus who before the beginning of time the plan was that all the fullness of God would be in Jesus dwelling on the earth. But what would he be here to do? What would he be here to do when he stepped foot into the middle of an ocean of rebellion. We'd still have the rebellion. We'd still have Genesis 3. We'd still have the rejection of God's rule, his right and good rule, a turning away from him, and therefore then the just and holy God's judgment hanging over the world, and all the evidence being death and decay everywhere we look. And then in steps Jesus into the middle of that If there is no cross and there is no redemption, what's the only thing that he can do? To display God's character. What's the only thing he could do? The only thing he could do would be to take an eraser and wipe away the creation. That's what justice and holiness would demand. That's what if there was no cross, but there is. Bless God that God had a better plan, a way to deal with the fallen and rebellious, broken, cursed creation that doesn't lead to its elimination, but rather to its redemption, its reconciliation to its right, good ruler. God thought up a way. Now, of course, God didn't sit around and kind of like, what could I do? But God thought up a way. Thought up a way to judge sin and death and remove it from the creation. Leave the creation then without sin and without death, without the marring and the effect of the marring that fall created. Making it so, God thought up a way to make it so that there would be a creation once again, like Genesis 2, once again in which God was all in all, in which he was the focus of everything. And there was no more rebellion, and there was no more consequence of rebellion. God thought up a way to do that. How? Christ's cross. We are most familiar with thinking about the cross in a very personal, individual way. And indeed, that's that's exactly where the text goes. Next paragraph is going to talk about people, individuals. We're most familiar with thinking about the cross and reconciliation and peace between me, an individual, or you, an individual, and God. And that's true. As a person individually trusts Christ's cross, that person individually is reconciled, forgiven of sin, brought back into union with with God who made him or her. Yep, for sure. We're most familiar with thinking about it like that. But here we're thinking about it a little bit bigger. He's reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How does he do that? What does that look like? When Jesus died, and Jesus then went into the grave, and Jesus then rose out of the grave, what Jesus was declaring not so much with word, but with deed. What he's declaring is that death and the penalty for sin, that day has now a a date of expiration on it. It's got a date of closure on it. I come out of the grave. I triumph over death. Look, proof right here. Death doesn't get the last say. There's something beyond death life again somebody once said referring to the book of Hebrews that when Christ died death died and when Christ rose again he said look on the other side of death there's life and it's as if he, he comes out of the grave and he opens a door into a new world a world that's been bleached of sin, bleached of death, the consequence of sin. And he says, I am going to walk into that world and rule it as king. Anybody want to come with me? And everybody in Christ, the air and the balloon, everybody in Christ moves through the door that Jesus opened into a new world, Cleansed, made right. And then Jesus steps through and he's going to close the door. And everything and everyone on the other side that said, no thanks. What happens? In the midst of looking at the hope over here, we have to realize that as the door closes, On the other side of the door, there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth. So says Jesus. Because on the other side, that's where judgment falls. Don't be left there. In Jesus, this this Jesus who is not just the one who created, but he's the one who recreates. He's the one who says, by what I have done, By what I have done, I open a door, I make a new world, I deal with sin. And everybody in me, you come through clean, and if you're not in me, you don't. So there's there's a really important message here, a really important truth here, the importance of being in Christ, because that's where and only where there is reconciliation, that's only where there is peace. Peace with God. So don't miss that. But Christian, mo- most of us here, you are in Christ. So what this is supposed to be is that it's supposed to be a log on the fire that fanned into flames causes in you to burn something brighter that, so you can see more and, and invigorating so that you are warmed and, and stirred to action. This Jesus, what he has done is made a world clean and new he's like like bleach has bleached out of this new world all sin and all wreckage and all fallenness and there is a place where you will be with him at peace that is glorious as we as we stand here right now in, in some ways we got to say, I don't see that yet. I know, I know, I know. I struggle to see that too. There's a guy with a garden hose. This is where I was going to put all that in. I struggle to see that. Sometimes the, the smoke off the dampened fire gets in my eyes and I, and I can't see. But here, this is Jesus. Jesus. preeminent not just not just over the creation but over the recreation because he is the one who came in fullness all of God's fullness dwells in him and he came to show us not just the glory of his judgment but the glory of his redemption the glory of his grace He came that there would be a new world, one that is at peace with God and that you would have a place in that new world. Christian, you do. And if you're not a Christian, you can if you become one. This is true. And and I, I bet that most of us know this. But why do we gather here every morning? We, the reason that we gather here every, every Sunday morning is to have this fire stoked with this kind of truth to be reminded of this is who Jesus is. Right. That's Jesus. To say to one another and to hear from one another behold, not just know about, but behold this Jesus. To meet with one another over truth like this and to be to be stirred to it, to be reminded of it, to, to pray with one another, that, that the Spirit of God would press it in and cause that to be not just something that I know, but something that I love. Not just someone who, that I know facts about, but someone that I, that I am connected to. If we walk in and, and walk out not having had that happen, then at least you've missed out on an opportunity. And probably also, you're walking out into a world unarmed, unfed, Try to make it through another week fasting. That's hard. So we come here and we say to one another, we read through a passage like this and say, brother, sister, look. Look at the image of the invisible God. Look at him, mighty creator, and in particular, look at him, crucified and risen, re-creator. Firstborn of the creation and the first one out of the grave. You're Jesus. Your Savior, your Friend, God Almighty, the Supreme One, who has everything in the world in His hands. And the only thing that which you face, the only reason that which you face exists today is because he's decided that it should be for one more day and is working it all for him, for his glory, and for you, somehow for your good. That is true. You can rest in that. This is a Jesus who is, who is deeply helpful because he is supremely exalted. Let me pray. Lord, would you fan into flame in us wonder at and thankfulness for and dependence on these truths about what you have done for us in Jesus. We, we need you to fan that into flames. We need you to cause that to burn in our hearts, to not, to not be content. Please don't be content for us to, to leave these things the level of stuff we know, will you press it into us and make it fire that burns within? Will you cause us to treasure Jesus and to trust him. And will you send us out into the world a people who are lit up. the people would see us and would see something of what you're like of who you are and when they meet us would would meet some of the blessings some of the grace that you bring to the world and we get some idea of what a new creation might look like and we get some idea of how to get there would you use us as useful people in your world fueled by a vision of you that is that is enthralling praying for things that we can't make happen we can only talk and use English words Spirit of God will you press into us will you change us, will you grow us we ask you for this that Christ would be known that the world would be blessed glorify your son in us please pray this in his name Amen